Hey, good morning. Check out what's going on with uh, today's indictment day. Target let her freak out. Trump flips out in new posts when Target letter revealed 58 minutes ago. I'm Ben Maysayas from the Midas Touch Network. On Wednesday, it was reported that Donald Trump officially received notice by special counsel Jack Smith that he was a target in connection with special counsel Jack Smith's ongoing criminal investigation into Donald Trump's theft of thousands of government records and Donald Trump's obstruction of justice there too, and that Donald Trump should be prepared to be criminally indicted. Donald Trump denied that this took place, but Donald Trump lies about everything, and Donald Trump then posted a series of completely vile and disinfo-riddled posts on his social media platform, exposing more than anything just how worried and nervous he is. Let's pull up some of the posts that he made, and, and I'll also show you a statement that he actually made to New York Times reporter Maggie Haberman. Donald Trump wrote sick people in a repost of an earlier uh, post he made where he wrote, the same people that illegally spied on my campaign created the fake dossier, cheated and rigged our sacred presidential election, tried and failed with impeachment hoax number one, impeachment hoax number two, pushed for years of Russia, 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 scam, invited the, quote, no collusion, Mueller, Bull, FBI, Twitter files, FBI, Facebook collusion, put the top DOJ official into the local DA's office to run the witch hunt in Manhattan and more are those that are now pushing the boxes hoax against Donald Trump. I think at some point, these posts that he's making on his social media platform are just going to be sounds. Like, at this point, he's just saying words like, Russia, 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 hoax, years, Russia, Mueller, Bull, FBI, Twitter. Like, they're not sentences. So I think the next iteration as this, as he continues to swirl the drain, he's just going to make noises. Like, it's just going to be like, like, oink, oink, drop, rah, 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 rah. I guess I'm going to be words. Oink, oink. Anyway, I digress. This is the next post he made. It's a repost. He goes, how can, all in caps, how can DOJ possibly charge me who did nothing wrong when no other presidents were charged, when Joe Biden won't be charged for anything, including the fact that he has 1,850 boxes, much of it classified, and some dating back to his Senate day, when even Democrat senators are shocked. No one's saying any of that. Also, President Clinton had documents and one in court. Crooked Hillary deleted 33,000 emails, many classified, and wasn't even close to being charged. Only Trump. The greatest witch hunt of all time. Just a whiny, whiny little baby. I apologize to little babies. I mean, the ranting and raving here of a lunatic. Okay, here's Donald Trump's next post uh, earlier on, uh, actually later in the day on Wednesday. He wrote, wow, this is turning out to be the greatest and most vicious instance of election interference in the history of our country. Remember, I'm leading De Sanctimonious big in the polls, but more importantly, I'm leading Biden by a lot. No, you are not. Also, and perhaps most importantly, they are launching all of the many fake investigations against me right smack in the middle of my campaign. 
something which is unheard of and not supposed to happen. DOJ, FBI, New York AG, New York DA, Atlanta DA, fascists all. You know, Donald Trump here is just the ultimate projectionist. Everything he does is projection. He's a fascist, so he goes, let me call uh, everybody else uh, who actually supports law and order, let me call them a fascist. Donald Trump engages in election interference. Donald Trump tries to overthrow our democracy, and so the propaganda tool of the fascist is accuse others of that which you do. And that's all we see Donald Trump. But don't these look like they're just getting more desperate? Doesn't this look like such a weak, weak person? And then, right after, it appears Donald Trump's lawyers were told that he is going to be indicted and that he is a target and uh, that he received an official target letter. Donald Trump posts, because Donald Trump lies about everything. He goes, no one has told me I'm being indicted and I shouldn't be because I've done nothing wrong, but I have assumed for years that I am a target of the weaponized DOJ and FBI, starting with the Russia, Russia, Russia hoax, the no collusion Mueller report, impeachment hoax number one, impeachment hoax number two, the perfect, he puts that in caps, Ukraine phone call, and various other scams and witch hunts, a travesty of justice, and election interference at a level never seen before. Republicans in Congress must make this their number one issue, and there it is, right? There is his call to MAGA Republican Jim Jordan and James Comer, attack the FBI, attack the DOJ, try to interfere in special counsel Jack Smith's criminal investigations, and by the way, MAGA Republicans like Jim Jordan, they listen to that. They, they don't do things for the American people. They do things for Donald Trump. Republicans don't do things for the American people anymore. They do things for Donald Trump. They want to be Donald Trump's retribution for Donald Trump being exposed as the corrupt criminal traitor that he is. And so, by the way, uh, Maggie Haberman, reporter from the New York Times, she reached out to Donald Trump to try to get comment uh, from him. She's got a relationship with Donald Trump uh, from reporting on him in the past. So she reaches out to him, says, Trump tells me minutes ago he has not been told he's getting indicted when contacted. It's not true, he said. It's not true, he said. Adding again, he hasn't done anything wrong. Uh, but even earlier in the day, before multiple reports came out from CNN and The Guardian and Washington Post that Donald Trump received this target letter and that he was a target of the criminal investigation of special counsel Jack Smith. John Solomon, who uh, publishes all this right-wing stuff, he's a right-wing uh, publisher, he goes, he, he did the story, feds inform Trump he is a target and likely to be indicted as DOJ rebuffs prosecutorial misconduct claim. There is no prosecutorial misconduct claim, but John Solomon is the person who all the right-wing MAGA Republicans try to launder their information to. And then Maggie Haberman basically say that Trump demurred when asked if he has been told that he is a target, because he obviously was told uh, that he was a target. And we also know from our reporting um, earlier uh, in the day um, about the various grand juries, right? There's 
uh, two grand juries, at least in Washington, D.C., a grand jury in the Southern District of Florida, federal courthouse, and then the Washington Post uh, reported that DOJ prosecutors are planning to bring a significant portion of the charges stemming from the mishandling of classified documents at the federal court in South Florida. Jack Smith wants to base the case where most of the possible misconduct happened. So I think we'll see charges out of both the federal courthouse in Washington, D.C., um, out of that grand jury, and also the grand jury in the Southern District of Florida. We uh, also reported, of course, that Taylor Butowich, former Donald Trump spokesperson and current Donald Trump uh, leader of one of Donald Trump's political action organizations called Mega Inc. I mean, it's so pathetic. He testified on Wednesday before the grand jury in the Southern District of Florida, and it was actually Jay Bratt who questioned him. And Jay Bratt is the top counterintelligence official at the Department of Justice. Yes, the same Jay Bratt who arrived at Mar-a-Lago on June 3rd, who received the false attestation from uh, uh, Donald Trump's lawyers uh, at the time. Evan Corcoran and Christina Bob said that they had done a diligent search and there were no more classified records, which all turned out to be a lie. But the fact that you had the top counterintelligence official asking questions of Taylor Butowich also shows that the Department of Justice Special Counsel Jack Smith really leaning into the espionage claims would seem to be a reason why you'd have Jay Bratt there asking uh, those questions. So a lot of lots happening. Uh, Donald Trump is completely losing it, swirling the drain, just making sounds, saying words, Raja, 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 Raja. Pathetic, pathetic, pathetic. I'm Ben Mycellus from the Midas Touch Network. Hit subscribe. We are on our way to 1.5 million subscribers. Thanks to your support. Check us out at patreon.com slash Midas Touch and wherever you get audio podcasts. Check us out there as well. All right, hit subscribe on YouTube and have a great day. Lock him up. Indictment season is upon us. Celebrate with the new indictment season t-shirt and v-neck exclusively at store.midastouch.com. Right on. Freaking out and melting down. Old diaper Don.
Um, live Trump attacked by new challenger and trouble for Kevin. Oh, that's majority 54. Um, oh, man. Hmm. Lance Thomas. Rift. Hit with bad news. From Senate investigators. Michael Popak, Legal AF. There is a battle brewing between Clarence Thomas, his multi-billionaire patron, Harlan Crow, and the Senate Finance and Judiciary Committee, following revelations and investigative reporting at ProPublica back in March about the close, incestuous financial relationship and patronage patronage between Harlan Crow, heir, one of the heirs, the Trammell Crow real estate empire, and Clarence Thomas, who's been sitting on the U.S. Supreme Court for over 30 years. A relationship that until March was unknown to the American people, not transparent, not Disclosed by Clarence Thomas or, of course, Harlan Crow. Anybody who's Harlan Crow? You never heard of him. He's a mega GOP Republican donor to all things right-wing and conservative, including the Federalist Society, including giving a half a million dollars to Clarence Thomas's wife for her Tea Party Movement Foundation, a half a million dollars. But that's not that's not even the largesse that's been bestowed upon and showered upon. Ginny and Clarence Thomas by Harlan Crow. Millions of dollars of luxury travel on yachts, mega yachts, private air, airplanes, you know, $4,000, $5,000 a night resorts paid for. Um, Clarence Thomas paid for by Harlan Crow too, but paid for by Harlan Crow going back 10 or 15 years. But that's not all. I feel like a late night pitch uh -huh. person for an infomercial. If you uh -huh. act now, You'll get a set of steak knives and a juicer. <laughs> Harlan Crow also bought not one, not two, but three separate real estate pieces of property that Clarence Thomas owned, some of which he couldn't even sell to anybody. But in a pinch, and right in the nick of time, Harlan Crow bought these properties, including the old childhood home of Clarence Thomas for, again, numbers verging into the millions of dollars. Um, and he had business in front of the court. At least one of his subsidiaries of the Trammell Crow Empire had a case in front of the Supreme Court while Clarence Thomas, of course, was sitting there and did not disqualify or recuse himself, let alone all the money he's given to conservative causes that end up being used to file briefs and lawsuits that end up where? At the U.S. Supreme Court. All this got blown away, blown up, and put into the public mind now, so we can never forget it, by investigative reporting of ProPublica. Why does it matter? Because some people might be saying, well, um, what's, what do we do about that? The House is controlled by MAGA Republicans. Who cares? You know, there's no, in these co-equal branches of government, who's going to come to...
rescue. The um, Supreme Court, led by John Roberts, has thumbed its nose at the American people and said, trust us, trust us. Why, why me worry? Sounds like Alfred E. Newman. Trust us, we don't need a code of ethics at the Supreme Court, we're the Supreme Court. And of course we see what happens when there's no code of ethics. So the Supreme Court has abdicated all responsibility of self-policing and, um, and creating an ethics rule. So that leaves it to, to the other two branches of government. The problem is the U.S. Constitution puts into separate spheres these entities, and the judiciary is in, the Supreme Court is in its own branch, and the um, executive branch, the president, and the House and the Senate, in Articles 1, 2, and 3, right there, right in the very beginning of our founding documents and papers, right? Well, right, except the oversight that Congress can have over the other branches, whether presidential or, in this case, judicial, exists. The power to investigate exists. And the Senate is fortunately controlled by the, by the Democrats. So the Democrats on the panel, let's say the Senate Judiciary Committee, led at the time now by Dick Durbin, and the Senate Finance Committee, led by Ron Wyden, a Democrat from Oregon, they can issue subpoenas just like their counterparts in the House. And so first it started about a month ago with the uh, Dick Durbin in the Judiciary Committee issuing a subpoena um, and a request for information to uh, what started as a request for information became, it's likely to become a subpoena, to Harlan Crow, Citizen Crow, asking him to provide the committee with all the information about all the trips and travel, real estate investments, other financial arrangements and entanglements between him, Clarence Thomas, and Jenny Thomas, and do it quickly. Well, Harlan Crow went out and got a mega law firm, Gibson Dunn, and a guy named Michael Bopp to write a letter in which he tried, Michael Bopp tried to teach Senator Durbin, the head of the Judiciary Committee, you know, the basics of the three co-equal branches of government, the separation of powers, and says, you know, you can't go after my guy because you can't go after Clarence Thomas and you can't investigate Clarence Thomas. It's almost like he's writing it for Clarence Thomas, who I'm sure saw a copy of this letter before it went out, and said, sorry, I'm not, you can't just do an expose for exposure's sake. You don't have uh -huh. any legitimate legislative purpose as the judicial branch, and sure we're not turning over any of these Corruption, documents to you. Fucker. Go pound sand. To which Dick Durbin said, um, I don't remember uh, history well, but I don't think your client, Mr. Crow, ever served on the Supreme Court, so he doesn't get to make the separation of powers argument. That's reserved for Mr. Thomas if we ever have set, you know, uh, Justice Thomas in front of us. And the reason that Durbin said they have the legislative power is they're getting to the bottom of a code of ethics that they're going to try to impose by one way or the other, maybe by withholding funding and money from the Supreme Court. Supreme Court, you think you do a good job? You don't need the other branches of government? Good. Go on your own. Try a fundraiser. Try a bake sale. Run your huge judicial apparatus nationally at the highest levels in the Supreme Court. Do it on yourself. DIY. Do it yourself. Get you. Go on, John Roberts, go on YouTube. Figure out how to run your branch of government without our money that's being appropriated by Congress. So there is the power of the purse, and Dick Durbin is reminding them of that. So you may want to give an ethics code and adopt one, or we may do something else and cut off your umbilical cord of funds. Well, when 
when uh, Trammell Crowe's heir, Harlan Crowe, who, by the way, also a Nazi and Hitler memorabilia collector, try to get that out of your brain while I'm finishing my hot take. Uh, uh, the other committee that's interested in policy setting is the Finance Committee. And the Finance Committee is responsible for Internal Revenue Service, Internal Revenue Code, taxes, and the like. And they're doing an investigation to look into how people at the very top of mega wealthy, like Donald Trump, like Harlan Crowe, how they avoid or evade or limit taxes improperly. And as part of that, they want to get to the bottom of how Harlan Crowe paid his taxes related to the gifts that were given and apparently not reported to Clarence Thomas. And if they don't get it from him, and as of right now, the same law firm, Gibson Dunn, the same lawyer, Michael Bopp, writing virtually the same letter to the finance committee is telling them to go pound sand, almost as if they're writing again for Clarence Thomas. We're, and we're not giving you all the gift records. We're not giving you all the vacation and travel records, the real estate transaction records. And, oh, I left this out in the hot take, trying to cram everything in here. You know, I'm trying to cram like uh, 20 pounds of potatoes into a five pound sack. Um, uh, Harlan Crow also paid for Clarence Thomas's, one of his kids' tuition, private school tuition. Um, so add that to the list of things on the whiteboard against Clarence Thomas in terms of things that weren't disclosed. And so the finance committee is like, we better go take a look at all that because our, our fellow colleagues over at Senate Judiciary are looking at ethics rules and we're looking at it from a taxing situation. Did you, Mr. Crow, pay taxes? How did you account for all of these gifts, vacations, lavish other uh, 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 comp compensatory things to, to um, Clarence Thomas? How was that accounted for? And let's look at Clarence Thomas's uh, returns and compare them. And then we'll make policy around it. So as of right now, despite a second demand by the Senate Finance Committee led by Democrat uh, Mr. Wyden, Senator Wyden, and the Senate Judiciary Committee making a second demand against Harlan Crow to turn over this information. So far, it's been met with tremendous resistance. And um, now it's, you know, in this chess match, in this cat and mouse, it's now advantage cat. And they're going to come back, I, I am sure, with a subpoena to subpoena the records and testimony of Harlan Crow to come before one or both of these committees as they continue to make policy of transparency as they try to regulate the best they can a rogue and out of control Supreme Court. I'm gonna follow it on hot takes just like this one, only on the Midas Touch Network. I do it about every day at the intersection of US law and politics. I do it on a podcast called Legal AF which is the leading news and, uh, and uh, law and politics podcast, also on the Midas Touch Network on YouTube, every place you can pull your podcast. If you like what I'm doing on a, pot, on a hot take like this, give me a thumbs up. It helps. It helps with the quality and the content and the quantity of what we're doing here on the Midas Touch Network. And you can follow me, Michael Popak, on all things social media at MS Popak. This is Michael Popak, Legal AF Reporting. Hey Midas Mighty, love this report? Continue the conversation by following us on Instagram, at Midas Touch, to keep up with the most important news of the day. What are you waiting for? Follow us now.
Snow White. Okay, let's see here. Harlan Crow, you never heard of him. He's a mega GOP Republican, all things right wing and conservative, including the Federalist Society, including giving a half a million dollars to Clarence Thomas's wife for her tea party. Clarence Thomas, no, like, tag him. Clarence Thomas resigned. Justice Thomas, Judy, oh my gosh, a Okay, great. So, stop using shoes. Marion Fireside Chats, the writer's strike, streamed 13 hours ago. A candidate in the White House, rekindling the spirit of the classic Democrat, Robert. Oh, okay, cool. Let's listen to this. Is going to be the political campaign uh, that will be decided on by podcasts, and particularly because I think the podcasts have the capacity this election for reaching people and allowing you know sort of dissident and insurgent candidates like myself to end run the corporate media monolith. Yeah. RFK Jr. is running for president. Ask him if I could be his VP. Hello, everyone. Today I'm speaking with writer, attorney, environmentalist, and 2024 presidential candidate, Robert Kennedy Jr. Jordan Peterson podcast, eh? The Democratic Party has become one of fear and ideology. Its inexplicable conclusion with legacy media and big pharma. How the COVID 19 (laughs) pandemic became an issue of tribal allegiance. The use of the doomsday climate narrative for political gains. Yeah. What can actually be done with renewable energy. And why the era of Kennedy Democrats can not only be revived, but uniting for Americans across boundaries, both physical and philosophical. What made you decide to throw your hat in the ring on the presidency, for the presidency at this point? Well, I saw the country going in a direction and Hell my political and party basket. going in a direction that was very troubling to me. Um, uh, you know, the country, one, really kind of needs a reboot. 
Um, but you know, my the role of my political party, I felt like um, like the Democrats kind of got derailed, yeah, and became the party suddenly and mysteriously of war. Uh-huh. And they were always skeptical of the military-industrial complex. Uh-huh. Uh, they became the party of censorship, which is abhorrent to every definition of liberalism. They became the party of fear, which is against our, you know, traditions. Uh, uh, Franklin Roosevelt, in his 1932 inaugural address, said that the only thing <laughs> that we have to fear is fear itself, and he understood that fear is a weapon of uh, of totalitarian elements and totalitarian control. Uh, it became the, the party of the neocons, which again was antithetical. The neocons were Republican, very original, pugnacious, foreign policy about uh, subduing the world and establishing hegemony through violence. Um, it became the party of Wall Street. Uh, President Biden yeah. has surrounded himself with Wall Street and, and you know, and, uh, the party that had forgotten its roots in the middle class of our country yeah. regarding uh, people, you know, the cops, the firefighters, the uh, union members, the people who were the bedrock of the, of the Democratic Party as the Um And all of those trends and others were... Uh, were disturbing to me, and I actually, Jordan, started thinking about running uh, before it was really viable, before I considered it viable, but just to, you know, to be able to take advantage of the fact that you're protected so much from censorship if you're running for president. There's actually federal rules that make it illegal for, uh, for the network TV uh, to censor presidential candidates. And, yeah. Uh, but my, my wife would never have let me run for, for president <laughs> if, if it was not a, you know, if I didn't intend to win. And then <laughs> last spring, a pollster and Jeremy Zogby, who runs, runs one of the biggest polling houses in, in North America, um, and had been polling me without my knowledge for several months. Uh, asked to see me, and he sat down with me and showed me the polling results that, that showed a, a uh, you know a, a very clear path that I could have to live. And with those, I was able to, over time, persuade my wife and my kids that this was a good idea. And I think at this point they're pretty happy with you know, the last two months. How are you doing in the polls at the moment, as far as you can tell, with credible polls? Well, the, the public poll, I average about 20%. Wow, that's um, good. Which is good. I mean, my candidacy is not being For treated as, um, as serious by the mainstream media. I think maybe it is a little bit more so, but it was originally dismissed as kind of a fringe candidacy. But I'm actually doing much better than, uh, than DeSantis, Governor DeSantis does against Trump. I'm doing much better against Biden. So it's, uh, I think that that Hi, sweetie. is just a media bias. Um, and my, our internal poll numbers are much, much better. And I, I think the most significant thing for Democrats over the long term is that our internal polls show that I do much better against uh, President Trump than President Biden. Does. 
Well, I beat him by, by almost double the percentage that President Biden does. And I do even better against Governor DeSantis. So, um, I, so, and I think that, you know, if the, if the public polling reflects that, I think that it, that's going to be very persuasive to a lot of Democrats who really see that the, uh, you know, the election is just a, a battle to keep Donald Trump from retaking the White House again. And I, I think a lot of Democrats who don't like me, I think mainly because of the propaganda um, that has dominated the very, very negative propaganda and negative portrayals of me and the, um, the misinterpretations of my viewpoints which have dominated the media and the public consciousness um, over the past several years, that that will begin to recede a little the more that people see of me and the more that, you know, the polling shows that I am more likely to beat President Trump than President Biden. I think it will, uh, it will force a lot of Democrats to take a second look at me. Why, why do you think that people feel that you might be a better alternative to Trump than Biden is? Like, what is it about what you bring to the table that's making you more credible on that point? Well, the, the, I think the reason my numbers oh, show that is that I've been able to bridge the divide between Republicans and Democrats. So a lot of my supporters, I have, I think I do better than any candidate with independence. And I, hey, I appeal to a lot of Republicans as well. Are you okay, huh? uh, and so, and I don't think, you know, President Biden can do that. And if he just do the math, you know, I, in the end, I'm going to, it's likely that I'll get almost all the Democrats who vote if, I, if I'm right, if it's me against, so let's say, President Trump. The likelihood is that most Democrats would vote for me and that he will get very little crossover. Whereas I will still get a lot of Republican votes and I'll get, uh, I'll dominate the independent constantly. And I think that will continue. I mean, my, that, that is not, that observation or that is not just an artifact of our polling, but it's, um, you know, it, it's reflected in conversations that I have every okay, single day of people approaching me in airports, of um, on airplanes, of, you know, when I'm, I'm doing, you know, when I'm in the countryside, which I have to go to a lot in rural areas, urban areas, uh, I'm getting, I'm getting a strong response and the response across the board. So I think it's a true, you know, the polling is reflecting something that's really happening. Right. Well, it isn't obvious to me, and, and this leads into another line of question, exactly why you're running on the Democrat ticket, because as you just pointed out, your policies, at least in principle, could appeal to Republicans as well, and that might make you a unique candidate on the, Democ on the Democrat side. I guess I'm curious about why do you... So, there's an analogy, I believe, between what's happened to the universities and what's happened to the Democrats. So what I saw happen in the universities was that the administration took over the faculty. The faculty retreated in 3,000 microsteps, and the administration moved forward. And that happened over about a 25-year period until the administration had captured the universities completely. And then the DEI types took over the administration. And it looks to me like something analogous happened within the Democrats. Like, I worked with the Democrats for a long time in California trying to 
help out my agents, my DEI. And so what I saw among the Democrats that I worked with was that they were unable to draw a dividing line between the moderate types and the radicals. So, and this is something maybe I'll push you about. So, for example, I went to Washington. I talked to a lot of Democrats, senators and congressmen, about what I saw happening in the broad public sphere, but also in the Democrat Party. And I asked, I asked them this question. When does the left go too far? And none of them were able to answer. And even though it's completely obvious that the left can go too far, I mean, that's one of the cardinal lessons of the 20th century. And I suggested that the left goes too far when it pushes equity. And all I got as a response from the Democrats, senators and congressmen alike was, well, the people who say equity, they just mean equality of opportunity. And that's not what they mean. I mean equality of outcome, and that's not the same thing at all. And I saw in that inability to draw that distinction, part of the reason that the Democrats have shifted in the direction that you described, in the direction that seems to be opposed in many ways to the best interests of both the working class and the middle class, but also characterized by this incredible strain of illiberalism and corporate fascist collusion, the sort of thing that you document, for example, in the relationship between the power elite and big pharma. And so my sense on the Democrat side, I couldn't shift the Democrats to the point, the ones that I was talking to, to the point where they would draw a distinction between them and the radicals. Just didn't seem possible. And so why do you think, I don't think the universities are salvageable, by the way. So why do you think the Democrats are salvageable? Well, I don't think we have a choice. We have a two-party system, and I, um, you know, I'm a lifelong Democrat. I feel like my party is being taken away from me in some ways by the, you know, the, um, the kind Corporate of ideologies, extreme ideologies, and really, you know, the culture of, of common sense uh, that I think troubles you and a lot of, you know, the things that you think about. And, uh, but I, I mean, why do I think it's salvageable? Because I, I'm talking to people on the street. I, you know, there are so many people who have responded to my candidacy positively because they see it as return to, you know, uh, being a Kennedy Democrats, they, you know, the Democratic Party that they yeah. loved and that they, right. um, you know, that they thought reflected their values, their ideologies, and their best interests, and the best interests of this country, and yeah. is likely to, you know, build on an America that they can be proud of, that their children can be proud of, that has moral authority around the world, and, um, you know, all the things that we'd like to say, that I think most people would like to say, I think the Democratic Party has been hijacked, as you say, by... Uh, kind of some extreme ideologies and uh, and in some cases kind of irrational I don't know thought patterns <laughs> and, uh, and I think they've kind of a, uh, the, the idea of returning it to common sense is appealing to a lot of people and I'm I'm just you know I'm just thinking those things that I and they seem to be reflected both in my polling and in the kind of reaction I get from people on the street and on Twitter and you know uh, so it's a melange of things that makes me feel that way, but, you know, I could be wrong. Well, I mean, part of the reason that I 
was willing to work with the Democrats to begin with, and I did that for about five years, was because I thought, I think like you do, according to what you just said, that, well, you kind of have to work with the institutions that exist, because those are the institutions that exist, and there seems to be some utility in trying to pull the Democrats, let's say, back back towards the center as much as that's possible. But I found that, I think we had some success in that regard, but it was in particular the, un, and I see this on the conservative side too, by the way, with the unwillingness to see, this is probably more true in Canada even, what is really at the core of this progressive ideology that stresses equity, for example, because equity, equity is an unbelievably dangerous doctrine. And, as far as I can tell, it's it's indistinguishable from the sort of Marxist How ideas that swept across Eastern Europe and, and oh, the Soviet Union and China, for that matter, um, in the 20th century, and that still prevail, certainly in China. And it isn't obvious to me at all that the Democrats have taken this with any degree of seriousness. And, you know, that's producing all sorts of strange pathologies on the on the cultural front. Uh, you've documented a fair bit, and, it, so, and this brings us into another area that's, that's adjacent to that, I guess. Jordan Peterson's kind of like a... Your mm -hmm. last book, Letter to Liberals, I think I've got that title right. Um, it's kind of like a Republican in disguise. Collusion that has occurred between the Democrats and, the, and Big Pharma. And this is also something I find completely inexplicable. Like 20 years ago, if you would have said that in 2020, the leftist types and the liberals, including the Democrats, would be colluding with big pharma. People would have thought you were completely out of your mind because for an endless amount of time, the number one corporate enemies of people who were liberal or on the left were big pharma and big energy. And so how do you explain what happened in relationship to liberal attitude towards big pharma during the COVID epidemic? Because I haven't been able to sort that out at all. What do you think's behind that? Well, I watched that happen kind of like a slow motion train wreck. And you're right that uh, traditionally, you know, pharmaceutical industries are, you know, it is a criminal enterprise. And, you know, I'm not saying that lightly. The four principal companies of Merck's and Ophi, um, Pfizer, Glaxo, that produce, for example, all the vaccines in America have $35 billion collectively over the last decade in criminal penalties and uh, damages Fraud. Uh, for lying to doctors, for defrauding regulators, for falsifying science, and for killing uh, hundreds of thousands of people. I mean, the whole opioid crisis was engineered by, uh, by the Sacklers and by the other big pharmaceutical companies, along with uh, uh, corrupt FDA officials, and that that is a crisis, and now kills a hundred. This year, killed one hundred six thousand American kids, twice the number of kids that died during the twenty-year Vietnam War. Uh, Vioxx is another good example. That was another uh, symptom of the corrupt collusion between pharma and the regulatory agencies, and the, the capture of those agencies by that industry. Because the agencies themselves have become sock puppets for that industry. And they killed uh, between 120,000 and 500,000 people with a, a drug they marketed as a headache medicine and a, you know arthritis medicine when they knew that it caused heart attacks. And they didn't tell the public that. They concealed that from the public. So, you know, a lot of people would have said, oh, it caused heart attacks. Well, I'll take an aspirin. But they weren't.
uh, and the collusion, with the collusion of the regulators, uh, took that information, deprived the public of informed consent. Now, the, the question is, Democrats knew that there's more pharmaceutical lobbyists on Capitol Hill than our congressmen, senators, and Supreme Court justices combined more than any other industry. They give double uh, in terms of lobbying what the next biggest industry uh, gives. And, you know, they, 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 it's easy for them to own Congress still. There was an ideological resistance among Democrats until a decade ago, and, and or really, uh, yeah, a decade. Um, what happened was that during Democrats are always starved for money for campaign money because Republicans can take money from dirty industries and from you know sort of people uh, disreputable people. Um, you know, from whether it's uh, the oil industry, the tobacco industry, the NRA, or, you know, things that a lot of Democrats consider disreputable. And they have unlimited money. The, the Democrats traditionally could only get big money, reliable big money, from two sources. One was the labor unions, and the other was the trial lawyers. And they don't have anywhere near the kind of money that, uh, you know, the, these industries have to give away. And so something changed during Obamacare, and and that was that the Obama administration and, and my uncle Ted Kennedy was head of the, was chairing a Senate Health Committee at this time. So I watched this whole thing very you know uh, very carefully and was disturbed at that time. In or because of the lobbying power of pharma, Obama could not get. Obamacare passed without the cooperation of the pharmaceutical industry. So he basically had to make a golden handshake with the devil. And the agreement they made was that, number one, Obamacare will, will, is going to benefit you because it's going to pay for all of your products of pharmaceutical drugs to Americans. Uh, but and the, here was the, you know, the key. We will not bargain over prices with you which you know medicare used to do that canadian government bargains when it you know provides health care to canadians it bargains it gets really good deals which is why americans go to canada buy, to buy drugs because they're, you know, they're much cheaper there but here they can pay um, the, the top they they could charge the top rate and the obamacare would have to pay and that is how obama got the pharmaceutical industry support and after that, it became permissible for Democrats to accept pharmaceutical money. So the pharmaceutical money began pouring into the Democratic Party. But, you know, on issues like vaccines, the Democrats and Republicans were pretty evenly split up to 2016. And then you had um, these, then you had uh, Trump run for presidency. And during his... Uh, during his campaign, he, on several occasions, he mentioned that he believed that vaccines were causing autism, and this was anecdotal to him. He had three friends who were uh, women, who were mothers, whose children had been completely uh, healthy, and then had regressed into, you know, lost their language and, and regressed into um, stereotypical uh, behavior of autism, associated with autism after receiving MMR vaccines. And so he and it, you know, his belief was that it, it was that the link was real. And he said it out loud on several occasions, I think three separate occasions. And 
at that time, anything that Trump said was immediately the, the, the reaction of the Democratic Party is whatever he says, we got to do the opposite. So even though we've hated NAFTA for our entire you know existence for our party, if if Trump now says he hates NAFTA, we've got to start liking NAFTA. And that, but that, so that was kind of what happened was those pronouncements by Trump were put by the Democratic Party doyens into the same anti-science dumpster as his climate denial, and it became a, a, a tribal issue. And so that you know, it was a culture war issue. If you were, if you if you thought vaccines cause autism, it meant you were a Republican. And if if you thought maybe they, if you thought they definitely did not, and that's been proven beyond any doubt, you were a Democrat. And there was no in between. There was no dialogue. There was no room for um, dissent or debate. It was a tribal issue, and it was life or death. And uh, you know that's what—that's the way that I saw that history happen because I watched the change in 2016. President Trump recently issued a warning from his Mar-a-Lago home: "Quote: Our currency is crashing and will soon no longer be the world standard, which will be our greatest defeat, frankly, in 200 years." What happened? There are three reasons why the central banks are dumping the U.S. dollar. Inflation, deficit spending, for her Tea Party oh, movement okay. foundation, spending, and our insurmountable national debt. The fact is, there is one asset that has withstood famine, wars, and political and economic upheaval dating back to biblical times gold. And you can own it in a tax sheltered retirement account with the help of Birch Gold. That's right. Birch Gold will help you convert an existing IRA or 401k, maybe from a previous employer, into an IRA in gold. When currencies fail, gold is a safe haven. How much more time does the dollar have? Protect your savings with gold. Birch Gold has an A-plus rating at the Better Business Bureau and thousands of happy customers. Uh, I guess Text it's, uh... Jordan to 989898 and get your free info kit on gold. Again, text Jordan to 989898. Okay, so you saw two things happen. You saw a collusion emerge because of the agreement that Obama made with big pharma companies, and then there was this twist that was thrown into it as a consequence of the Trump candidacy. So also, I'm wondering, it wasn't that long ago, well, I guess it's 20 years now, so it's some reasonable amount of time, that the laws in the United States were changed so that big pharma could advertise their products directly to the consumer. And that was actually a revolution in messaging. And, and now, as you pointed out in your last book, big pharma controls about 75% of the advertising on legacy media, and even more on the news shows. And so, and, uh, I, it, I, don't, I think it's I think it's about 75% on the news shows. I'm not sure. I think there are even bigger advertisers. If you look at the entire sort of landscape, I, I mean, automobiles may be um, may be bigger, um, but I, but certainly on the evening news shows, the evening news is kind of the is the perfect landscape to advertise. Um, pharmaceuticals because everybody who watches the evening news, essentially the entire demographic is over 60 young, you know, my kids would not dream of turning on the evening news they get the news from the you know, from, from their from their screens uh, but the people who are sitting down and watching the evening news are your age and they're my age and as you know when you get to our age you spend a lot of time at doctors and you're on and those people are on a lot of drugs, and so they're watching it. And 
Roger Ailes told me, I think it was uh, in 2014, and he, of course, was the, you know, the founder and CEO of Fox News, and I was trying to get, uh, I had made a doc, or participated in the making of a documentary about the impacts of mercury in vaccines on neuro, neurodevelopmental disorders in children. This is an epidemic that had begun in 1989 of neurodevelopmental disorders. And he, he had a relative who had been affected that he believed was, um, was vaccine injured. And he always would put me on his shows. I had this weird relationship with Roger Ailes because I had spent three months in a tent with him and I was 19 years old in Africa. <laughs> and he had this friendship. You know, he was a very clever, witty guy and he had not started Fox News. He had just left the, the running the Nixon campaign communications. And he had, he had stepped out from the Merv Griffin show, and uh, but I had this lasting friendship with him. He was a very loyal friend, and he would always make the hosts of Fox TV to put me on to talk about environmental issues. So I was the only environmentalist for a decade that was going on Fox News, and I, I looked at him kind of as a Darth Vader, you know, <laughs> what he had done to... Uh, to uh, American television and communications, yeah. but I still had this strange friendship with him. So he would always put me on, and I went to him to try to get on to talk about this documentary. He looked at it. His assistant, Mike Clemente, was running the station at that time. The network looked at it, and both of them loved it. But he said, we can't let you on. And he told me at that time, he said, if any of my hosts independently let you on to talk about this, I would fire them. I would have to fire them. And he said, if I didn't fire them, I would get a call from Rupert within 10 minutes, meaning Rupert Murdoch. And he said to me at that time, he said, 75% of my evening news division advertising revenues are coming from pharmaceutical companies. And he, he told me, he told me that of the 22 ads on the typical evening news show, that typically 17 or 18 of those were pharmaceutical ads. And uh, so that, you know, that tells it all. Big I've business. seen again and again and again, you know, people like Jake Tapper, who did this, you worked with me for three weeks doing this incredible documentary on a, an article that I published in 2005 about a secret meeting um, that DEC sponsored with 75 vaccine makers about how to hide from the American public the links between autism and vaccines. They, they, and I, I obtained the transcript for these from those meetings. I published them in Rolling Stone. And Jake Tapper, prior as the Rolling Stone uh, publication data approached, he spent three weeks with me doing an exclusive for ABC, which he was then working for on my article, a companion piece, and the night before the piece was supposed to run, he called me up and he said, the piece just got killed by corporate. And he said, in all my career, I have never had a piece killed by corporate, and I'm so mad. And then uh, after that, I called him, I called him the next day, and he went dark. And I've never spoken to him again, but he's become kind of this shill for pharma since then. So, um, and I've watched that happen to so many, uh, you know, uh, announcers on TV. Think that's what happened to Tucker Carlson? Well, I think it might be. I mean, the timing is good, but there was a lot of reasons they, they wanted to get rid of Tucker. 
Liability. Strange move, eh? Because I think Fox probably got rid of Fox News by getting rid of Tucker. You know, well, it's, it's, it's a big, they lost to be in, they they seem to have lost a big audience, and it is weird. I mean, he Tucker was getting four point five million viewers a night, and compare that to CNN. CNN gets about uh, three. The, the prime time CNN has three hundred forty-five thousand viewers. Tucker was getting more than ten times what CNN. He, he dwarfed anybody else on Fox. I mean, he was clearly the breadwinner. He was the anchor, and uh, and they 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 fired him. They were making some kind of a point, and uh, you know maybe maybe he just. This is the biggest being, fucking liar. You know, Fox News is a is important to us in this country, but to Rupert Murdoch's empire, it's just a drop in the bucket. So you know, and he may, who knows? It may have been pharma. It may have been uh, Rupert Murdoch's ego. I don't know what it was. Yeah, well, I wonder if a policy transformation that made it illegal for big pharma to market direct to consumer would. Something in the text messages about Rupert. Problem. Yeah, I mean, well, that's right, and and I looked into that, and um, that, you know, the change happened, Jordan, in 1997, and that's when um, FCC changed its rules and FDA approved, which was um, the rule before that was that there could be no direct.